Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. And now on Facebook, we have a group. I would suggest you join the group. You get announcements much, much faster, it seems. So join the group on Facebook, same name, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. Also on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. And you can email me, um, Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. I want to thank um, Maria. I want to thank Brendan. Those are people who donated. You can go on PayPal and donate to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. It helps, you know, with advertisement, equipment, all types of things that um, you guys may not realize that help keep the podcast going, me help find guests, all types of things. So I appreciate uh, Maria and Brendan. I wanted to give a shout-out to them. Also, you can check the show out on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, uh, Google, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. Oh, and iTunes. I think I'm not sure if I said that. <laughs> We're all over. Anyway, thank you. This morning, a wonderful, wonderful new author, not a new writer, but a new author, um, she's a speaker, she's a lawyer, she's the executive director of the Felton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Um, like I said, she has written before Vogue, Time, Harper's Magazine, the New York Times, Book Review, and more. She served as an advisor on the Peabody winning podcast, The Promise, and she lives in San Francisco Bay Area with her family. She has a new book out, Don't Let It Get You Down, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Body. Good morning, Savala Nolan. Good morning, Joy. It's so wonderful to be here. I'm really excited and really thankful to be part of your community this morning. Thank you, thank you. I know she's on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast, so she's up early, people, so please give her a round of applause because you know, a lot of people sleep late on Saturday, and um, she's taking time to wake up for me. Um, I, I, your book is like we could sit and talk for like we need to go to like a cafe, open the book, and I could just like do some random page, and we could talk for like an hour or two or more. And then I'll see you later on tonight, and we'll get some wine, <laughs> and we'll talk about the other chapter because that's a whole yes. other thing, you know. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Yes, I could see that. So now let's start off with you a little bit. Uh, You are a lawyer, and you're now the executive director um, at the center. How is that? What has that experience been like for you? It has been a dream come true. I went to the University of Berkeley School of Law and uh, you know, I took the bar and I practiced law. I practiced as a corporate litigator for a while, and then I did civil rights work in Detroit. But all of the while, I had my eye on this position that I currently have, which is running the social justice program at the law school. So that means ensuring that conversations about power and privilege and who gets to belong and culture and, you know, whether the law is doing what it is meant to do, you know, very often it is doing what it was meant to do because it was designed, you know, in ways that are oppressive, Um, but how we can imagine a more just and equitable and kind society for people who are chronically left out of the benefits and the rights of citizenship. Like I get to think about all of those beautiful things with incredibly smart students who are really excited about changing the world. 
And so all these other jobs I had, I was waiting for this job to open up. And when it did, mm. I applied, you know, I got it. And, and we moved from Detroit to, to California so that I could pursue this. And um, it's, it's truly been a dream come true. I'm really, really blessed. And one of the blessings has been that it has uh, given me time to write. You know, when, when you're in academia, they like you to write. <laughs> they like mm-hmm, you to publish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had a lot of support from my colleagues and just from the institution in general to, to pursue this book and, and to write it, which has been really fantastic. I don't take it for granted. Over this last year, we've had a lot of crazy stuff going on with our health, uh, social justice issues most definitely. How have your family been dealing with that, the COVID and all these other issues that you are, like, bombarded with on a daily basis, especially being the executive director? Yeah, you know, it is it is tricky because part of my job involves staying on top of the news and being um, occasionally, you know, the, a voice, an institutional voice that speaks to the public or that speaks to the students, you know, about these issues. So I have not been able to turn away or take a break, um, even though sometimes it has, it has been desperately, like, I've desperately wanted to, you know, as a woman, as a black person, we have been incredibly lucky. COVID did pass through my family. There were people who got it, but they had mild cases. My husband is an essential worker, so he, you know, I was, have been worried about his level of exposure for a long time, but somehow he has either managed to have a mild case that we didn't know about or not get it, you know. So we mm-hmm. have been very, mm-hmm. very lucky with COVID. You know, the violence in the world, um, that's just extremely hard to take and I feel it physically and spiritually and emotionally and um, writing this book, you know, in which I got to talk about state violence against black people and violence against women and, you know, some of the pain, but also some of the joy of like some of my more marginalized Mm -hmm. identities has been really healing. Um, difficult too because you know you read the book you know it's like I go straight out some kind of hard topics and really dig into them but um as any writer will tell you and probably many have told you on the show like writing about things is a way of processing them and uh, a way of being in conversation with your community about them so the yeah, writing of the I book mean, that's... has helped me get through this I think your book will help a lot of people. Um, One of the issues that really stood out for me was when you were talking about binge watching the TV show SVU. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yes, why is nobody mentioning that? Hello. Like, I remember when I I stopped watching it. (laughs) I stopped watching it. It's just like writing about women in rap music. I like certain rap. Yes. But do you realize there's this other rep and you're like totally like basically putting your sneaker down my throat as a woman. I can't. I, yes, I like the beat, but I, I can't. I, it just pains me to keep listening to like, okay, for example, when I was reading that area in your book, I don't know if you see mm-hmm. on, on Instagram, they're doing this new thing where um, people do the bam, 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 and they're changing their clothes real quick and it has the, yeah. the music underneath. Well, the yeah. last words before they actually start to change their clothes is, I, I put my dick in my, your mouth. Oh, my. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I don't exactly. even know what to say to that. <laughs> like, I, one um, day it finally just hit me. He's saying what? 
Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. What you want to say? Uh, what you want to say to that? <laughs> well, I mean, what I want to say is I'm I'm glad that you know my daughter is nowhere near an age where she's going to be on Instagram. You know, um, yeah. it, there's something painful about that to me for so many reasons. You know, and I think it speaks to what I was writing about in in this particular essay. You know, I. I want to write about SVU. Well, let me just say, I don't want to get hate mail from SVU fans. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the show is beloved. I occasionally watch it myself, you know, Um, and and this is a really complex issue, but I wanted to write about my own behavior because it confused me. Like, I'm a feminist. I've experienced sexual assault. I'm someone who's generally really disgusted by violence against women, including the sort of sexual violence, right, Joy, that you're just describing, like, mm-hmm. I put my dick in your mouth, you know. Um, not that that's an inherently violent, you know, activity between two consenting adults, of course not, but said in that way, you know, um, it has a bit of an edge to it. And at the same time, I was someone who could binge these Law & Order SVU episodes that are so graphic and really drive home the message that women are, um, you know, almost by definition in danger and that it's normal Powerless. for us to be harmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like it, and, and they drive their, you know, they derive rather their life force and their storytelling from really graphic violent violence against women so often. And I wanted to explore how it is that I you know, could have the political identities that I claim to have and still be entertained for hours by these stories. And, you know, don't get me wrong, it's very complicated. Like, on the one hand, a show like SVU validates women's experiences. You know, it sheds light on how we're harmed sometimes. But on the other hand, like, when you frame these stories as entertainment, there's a way that it degrades their impact and, you know, the sort of binge quality partially reproduces the very problem the show wants to solve, which I think is the normalization of violence against women. So, yeah, I think it's all over that's the, the culture, thing. you know. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yes, that's the same thing. Like you were saying is that um, with the song I was telling you on Instagram, a consenting adult, they want to have sex, and he puts dick, dick in their mouth, that's fine. That may be very pleasurable. Nothing wrong with that on my part. But it's the way that it's repetitive, and I, I can't imagine how many times people have listened to that song and those images with old people, uh, young people, kids. I mean, little kids, they're, they're using that song. And I'm like, do you know what he's saying? Like, yeah. <laughs> You know, so um, I personally have not. I personally have not seen that that one, but I feel like I've seen yeah. variations on it. You know, there's Probably. more than one out there Probably. for sure. Yeah. Now you talk about the state, and and you're a lawyer, and one of the things I read in an interview you had that you said the law is not neutral, but in your book you talk about the state being in the lives of your father and his family. And when you started talking about it, I just felt it was like this large octopus that kept growing and growing, and you were going down this rabbit hole. And I was like, when is she going to stop? She didn't stop yet. We're, we keep going. No, please, Savala, stop. You know what I mean? Like, from the beginning of his existence, the state was mm-hmm. there. 
you know. Um, yeah. How did you How did you find out about these stories? You, I think you mentioned the two sisters. Talk to us about this. Well, the first thing I will say, just to underline it, is that the law is not neutral. Unfortunately, it's often taught in law schools as if it is neutral, you know, as if there's something natural about the laws that we have and that they're in place because they simply should be, you know, the the same way the Mm -hmm. sun rises and sets. But, of course, that's not the case. The laws are just the codified preferences and opinions of the people who have power, right? That's what a yeah. lot is. Yes, that's what you it's would the say. the people mm-hmm. who have power, you know, protecting their interests, whatever those may be. Um, and so I think it's really important for all of us and also law students to understand that what they're learning is not neutral. They're learning a system of preferences. Um, and in our culture, like preferences, you know, of historically rich people, white people, men, um, and preferences that were incredibly dehumanizing and violent towards women, people of color, and black people, and other groups, of course. And I talk about this in the context of my family. My father was black. He died in 2018. Rest in peace, Dad. And he, as you say, Joy, the state and state power and state violence was in his life from such a young age. He was born in 1938, and he was born into a system, a state system, that really was like a battering ram banging at his family. You know, his father mm-hmm. was incarcerated. Um, there, the, there was a lot of state interference in terms of, like, foster care and his mother's right to mother her own children, you know, and we know that black women are often fighting for the right to mother their own children. And historically, we're not able to. Like, that was the basis of chattel slavery, was disrupting black women's reproductive rights. And so I trace what happened in my father's life sort of back through history to his grandmother, who was murdered by state violence, um, and all the way to his death, because I think there's a through line um, to how he died in 2018 and, you know, the history of state violence in this culture. And, you know, it's a heavy, it's a heavy essay and you're right, Joy, like it just goes on and on and on. And, and that's part of the sadness and part of the point that I'm, that I'm trying to make in the essay, which is that state violence and state power, it looms way too large in the lives of so many black and brown people and there's a tremendous unfairness and lasting intergenerational damage that comes with that. Yeah. Well, recently I found out about a story that's been on the news, a young woman, a couple actually, she took her baby to the hospital because um, I don't know if it was a boy or girl, but they weren't drinking enough fluid and she was pregnant with another baby. So her breast milk wasn't coming as much. So she took the baby to the hospital to try to get fluid. Mm. Well, in taking the baby to the hospital, they um, DHS was called, and she was her baby was taken away from her, mm. and because they said she was being neglectful, and um, she had to fight to get her baby back. Uh, 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 almost I don't know if it was almost a year. It seemed like the, the story I was reading, but so so she got her baby taken away. She's pregnant. Then they're going down the road, and the cops stopped them. And these oh, cops, boy. this is after they got the baby back, 
They take the baby again. Oh my God. Okay. It's, now it's just her. There's a black woman. Um, she was actually on, I think, American Idol or The Voice or something. She was. She's a singer, and her husband. Now, talking about black men, uh, uh, black people, people of color, her husband is a black man. He's brown skin and he has locks. He has um, kind of like basket locks type of thing, you know. And I was just like, wow, would this happen to someone else who was not black? Why did they think that she was being neglectful? They have all these pictures of the family, different times, people, you know, protesting on their behalf about what wonderful parents they are and how involved they are. Mm -hmm. And um, because their baby was dehydrated, uh, they took the baby away. And they said that they wouldn't, uh, I don't know, give them B12 shots or something. And the parents said, no, we never, nobody even asked us that when we were in the hospital. Now, I'm a white uh, It's heartbreaking. Worker. Yeah, it's very heartbreaking. So my point is, yes, there are examples even today of the state taking black women's children away from them. And we're not in slavery. It's not 200 years ago. It is now. It is a valid situation. And um, come to find out in that particular state, um, that uh, person who's heading, I think, DHS, um, actually is now being investigated for, for this matter um, because that woman, is, the young woman is not the only mother that it's happened to. Um, but so, yes, it, it still happens. But that brings me to the three slaves that you found out were uh, property of one of your family members. You want to talk about them um, and and your little digging historical digging about who they were and trying to find out where they where they lived and things like that. Yes, and thank you for bringing that up. Um, I feel I feel a need to just speak about these three people that my family enslaved and to honor them, you know, as, as much as I can, sort of as a penance, I guess. Um, so I, your listeners can't see me, but if they, if they did, they could probably tell that I'm a mixed black person. You know, my dad is black, my mother is white, and I'm descended from enslaved people on my dad's side, and I'm descended from slaveholders on my mother's side. And the way we found that out was through, you know, genealogy, like Ancestry.com. You know, lots of people have those accounts and kind of pursue that as a hobby. And my sister found a document that suggested that um, – our fourth great-grandfather had owned, quote-unquote, enslaved people. I always put owned kind of in quotes because it's like I get that that was the legal truth of the time, but it's not a moral truth. You know, you can't own another human being. So there's a fiction to it, and I, I just feel the need to point that out. But, uh, I mean, mm. you can control another human being, right? But you cannot actually own another human being, regardless of what the law says. So. Anyway, mm -hmm. stepping off my soapbox, um, <laughs> we, you know, we weren't surprised to learn that about the white side of my family. There's so many white families in this country that have a very direct tie to chattel slavery, and almost all of them have an indirect tie to it, you know. And uh, our family was from Virginia. They came to the colony in the 1700s. You know, they owned land. Like, we just had a feeling it was possible. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just possible, it was true. And so I, I went on this journey basically through a ton of research um, and patience and pain and prayer and, you know, c confusion, anger, sadness, all the emotions to try to understand um, who these 
women were, Phyllis, Grace, and Peggy were what they were called in, in this document that my grand, great, fourth great-grandfather wrote, you know, quote-unquote, giving them away. I don't know that those were the names they used for themselves, but that's what they were called in the document, Phyllis, Grace, and Peggy. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to see them as much as I could and find out as much as I could about them. And the essay is about that process, and it's about what it's like to be descended from slaveholders, you know, people who trafficked human beings, boys, women, girls, men, it's human trafficking. Families. That's what it was. Human mm-hmm. trafficking. Yeah, for decades. My family mm-hmm. did this for decades. Um, and descended from enslaved people at the same time. And, you know, Joy, one of the things that was so interesting because I to write this book I did research into the black side of my family and, and the white side of my family. There's this unbelievable like inverse relationship that the black and white side have to history in my family like if you're black in this country and you know you're not a recent immigrant for example like if you can trace your lineage to chattel slavery it's almost impossible to get information more than a couple generations right because the state has basically erased the existence of your family through chattel slavery. There's no records, you know. So there's mm-hmm, this deep mm-hmm. hunger that most black people feel to understand where we came from and we cannot get the information. It's not there. On the other hand, for the white side of my family, this information was easy to find. Like all we had to do was look at the property, uh, the tax records for the county where my family lived, and enslaved people mm-hmm. are listed on tax records because they were considered mm-hmm. property. So the information mm-hmm. is abundantly available, but there's no desire to engage with it, right? Like no one in my family on the white side talked about this. Um, that was another it's, it's, great point. That, that was a great point. And I had never really thought about that. We as black people are trying to find our, you know, ancestors and where we come from, and we know that probably a lot of us were um, descended from slaves. Okay mixed if you're light-skinned, okay, you may be, you know, you're Native American or white, it's something, you know, going on there. But I actually never thought about white people looking into their background and then acknowledging that we're slaveholders and talking about it. Right. Well, there's not a real big desire to do that. And a part of me understands, like, it's very difficult to contend with the reality that people you are related to were human traffickers or otherwise benefited from that system in a profound way. You know what I mean? That's difficult. And we don't do a really good job of, um, I mean, this is going to sound possibly nuts, but I think it's true. We don't do a really good job of helping white people or supporting white people in doing that process. And what I mean by that is, when I say supporting, I'm not talking about, you know, comforting and kind of like making them feel better about it. I mean, um, calling them to the table to do it and sort of insisting that that is a necessary part of having white identity in this country. Like that Mm -hmm. is a necessary part of it. You know, you have to take, um, a holistic view of who you are. And in our culture, that includes reckoning with, with what race is doing and has done in your life and in your family. And if you're white, that probably means in some form or fashion reckoning with chattel slavery. And we don't require white people to do that. 
if we did, I would view that as a as a form of support for them to do it, you know. Um, yeah, I think that you know this, this generation says this generation is like, well, I I don't I don't um, I don't own slaves. I'm not racist. You know, why are you mad at me? But um, one of the things that many of the authors I've talked about who've come on, we talk about this issue of generational. Like you think years, but if you think in generations, there may be only a couple generations back, say four maybe in some families, mm-hmm. and that person knew somebody who was a slave or their parents were a slave or um, they themselves could have been a slave. So if you think generationally. Or you know, Joy, I mean, I, forgive me for interrupting, but in the 1930s, you know, in the census from the 1930s, there were over 100,000 people who were formerly enslaved, who were still alive in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yes, generations, you know, but maybe not. You know, my godfather was alive at that time, and he's alive now. So that overlaps with his lifetime, and in a way it overlaps with mine because I am so close to him, you know. Like Mm -hmm. these sort Mm -hmm. of walls we like to build between eras of our history are actually very porous. You know, yes, and, yes, and that's that's what people fail to realize that they keep thinking, oh, it's way, way back. But your grandmother or grandfather put values onto your mother and your father. Your mother and father are putting values, uh, ethics onto you. You're putting these things onto your kids. So it's it's a it's a there's a line, there's a string that keeps all attached. So all the things that you yeah. learned that were good or bad ugly or, or, or sexy, all these things, uh, right or wrong, are coming through the different generations. Um, of course, they can be unlearned and people can um, develop a different viewpoint. And you do talk about that in your book. Um, we're running close to time, but let's talk about you again. You are a mom and you have a daughter. You are yes, also married to a white man. Um, which was funny because you write that whole chapter about white guys. <laughs> which, uh, I know. Which, which hilarious. I know. It's funny how that turned out. Um, <laughs> so, so let's talk about the daughter, though. Now, your daughter, she's very, very light. And talk to us about how you're teaching her about race. Well, I'm teaching her about race and gender at the same time, right, because um, – Black womanhood is is its own thing, you know. Yes. And uh, I am. I will preface this by saying, you know, I'm learning as I go, right? Just like everyone else. What I want to do is to give her a sense of joy and belonging and pride in her blackness, um, with the understanding that you know she is her own human being and she's mixed and she may choose to define herself in a way that is not how I would define her, and that is her right as a human being, you know. But Mm -hmm. that's down the line for her. At this point, I view my job as giving her um, roots in blackness because that is the place that will have her in our culture. Like, that is where she belongs. She is not white the way we do race, you know what I mean? We still Mm. operate under the one-drop rule, for better or worse, and I take a practical view of that as her mother um, and and consider it part of my job, you know, is teaching her about her body, and that includes teaching her about race, because that's that's where race, you know, lives, is is in our bodies. 
not that it's real, but, you know, that, that it's an embodied thing in our lives. Um, right, right. And it's complicated because on the one hand, I want to give her access to the joy and the pride. On the other hand, it also involves teaching her about some of the risk and the precarity and the hazards and the harm that come with being Black in this culture. And as soon as I do that, I start to chip away at her innocence. So it's like, how do you arm your child, you know, for what's to come while letting them be a child? And that's true for how I teach her about gender, too. It's really complicated, and I I do write about it in the book, the mistakes that I'm sure I'm making and the things I think I'm getting right. No, I think, you know, the book, you bought her a book, you talk about a book you have purchased for her and, and, and how you researched the book. And there were so many, and you found one you thought fit for her. And, and that's what we do as parents is a lot of research and listening to our guts as well. And as I told you before we got on, my daughter, she's older, and, you know, I still worry about her. And one of the things is my daughter is brown skin and I'm light. People always, oh, are you mixed? And they're like, what, well, what are you? And I'm like, I'm just black. Well, black and what? Like, no, I'm just black. Like one time my neighbor, black. somebody said they thought I was, I was black and, and, and English or something. Like from like, I was British. And I was like, what? Who the heck told you that story? Like, <laughs> no, as far as I know, I'm just, I'm just black. Um, now, in they told research, themselves that. They told themselves up. Yeah, I found further research that actually I am part white because my mom found out that she was part white and she didn't know, and it was just this whole big, ah. But anyway, back to my daughter, um, you know, she's brown skin, and I remember uh, one day she had come home from camp, and she was, to me, this beautiful chocolate drop. She was beaming. She was babbling. She was telling me all the stuff that was happening at camp and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And, mom, da, 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 da. and I was looking at her and I was doing that. And then there was this moment of, wow, she is not going to go through this universe the way I'm going through this universe. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm white. I'm not white, but I am very light. And there's a certain difference that people, white people, they, they behave toward me. Then of they course. would behave toward her. Toward her. Uh, and this is a generalization. And I worried for her, you know, and I said, what can I do? There's absolutely nothing except arm her with she's beautiful, she's intelligent, she's smart, you have support systems here, um, you are not alone in the universe, you know, I want to hear you and, and try to listen to you, even though sometimes I don't, I, I'm still the bomb. <laughs> so, and that, you know, and that she's not, her blackness is not defined by pain, Right? Like, we have this tendency to define blackness in this culture in terms of pain and struggle. And Mm -hmm. there has to be a way to recognize the pain and struggle without making it the thing that defines us as black people. No. And I I agree with that. And I totally tell her, you're fine. You know, just the way you are, you're fine. And she is very, she holds her head high and she has her own accomplishments that cannot be denied. And um, I know she's probably killing, probably screaming if she's listening. <laughs> no, <laughs> but anyway, back to your book. I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book. And so I, I want to encourage right. people to follow me on, on social media and um, also follow you. Now, you're on social media. Um, 
uh, not quite Beyonce. We didn't get to talk about that story. That's a whole other story. There's there's a story in a book that's about a whole Beyonce's talk. Other story. Uh, that's the that's the wine. That's the wine. I told you I needed to get a glass of wine later on tonight, and we can talk about Beyonce because I got a Jewish white friend too, and I got a mm. similar story. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I will have to schedule that. That's one of my favorite pieces in the book. Is about this Beyonce song and this interracial friendship that. Unfortunately, went off the rails, you know, because we couldn't we couldn't sort through who had the the claim to this particular Beyonce song. But yeah, mm-hmm. I'm on Instagram mm-hmm. at not quite Beyonce, as in I am almost, but not quite Beyonce. And I I love meeting people there and hanging out on Instagram. <laughs> well, thank you for writing the book. You're gonna definitely stir up some good conversation with people. Uh, are, Whitney, are you working on another book, or is school starting and you're kind of busy? What's your What's your situation with another book coming up? I am just starting to be able to think about another book. You know, this book was just published, and so my mind has been totally preoccupied with it. But I'm just now starting to think um, that I may write more about motherhood. You know, but we'll see. It's like I got to get this girl settled in school. I got my own classes at the law school. I got to, you know, get syllabus ready and all that. But Yes, I am hoping to write another book for sure. I I would feel so good and so lucky if I were able to do that. Well, I'm going to have to talk to you offline because I'm thinking about writing a play. When I started reading about your three um, uh, relatives who uh, who were slaves, the three women, a a play, Mm -hmm. a musical, just all this stuff started coming to my mind. It's the theatrical. So so, uh, give me a minute. Maybe I'll write something up. But, yeah, there's there's something there with that story. Yeah, definitely something there. All right. Well, you have a great weekend. Um, Take care. Take care of your family, yourself, and and have some fun. Make sure you take care of yourself. Thank you, Joy. This has been such a pleasure. I'm really honored to be one of the guests on your show and to hang out with all your people today. And you have a wonderful weekend, too, and I hope we get to do this again sometime. Definitely, definitely. All right. Take it easy. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with author Savala Nolan Esquire. She is the executive director of the Selton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. But she wrote a book that we just finished talking about called Don't Let It Get You Down, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Body. I'm going to be giving away some copies of her book, so you want to follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter, Check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. I also, we have a group on Facebook, so you want to join the group. I think you get more announcements faster. Also, I'll be doing special giveaways on the group that I won't be doing other places, so you check that out. And also, in the future, I'll probably be doing live interviews uh, on Facebook um, Live and maybe on Instagram, so stay tuned for that. Thank you, thank you for your support. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Um, Stay cool. It is so hot in so many places. All right, take it easy. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT, G-O-A-T, acronym, stands for greatest of all time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council.